All right, let's open our Bibles to Micah. On, on Wednesday, we did chapters 1 through 3. This coming Wednesday, we will probably finish the book of Micah. Um, but I've taken my text this morning from chapter 5. I've entitled the morning's message, Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. Let's read our text for Paul read for us earlier. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughters of troops, He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem, Euphrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old and from everlasting. As we've been making our way through the Bible, one of the Things that I continually point out as you have, um, for example, the first three chapters dealing with nothing but God's judgment. And then all of a sudden it continues to talk about um, this before and after verse 2. And one of the things I've been pointing out is in the middle of nowhere the Holy Spirit will put a prophecy in um, and in some cases not have it be fulfilled for thousands of years, such is the case this morning. What we're reading here is a prophecy of where Jesus is going to be born. And um, we will go to that uh, in Matthew in just a little bit. It's in Matthew and in Luke, the fulfillment of Micah 5, verse 2. But let me get, give you just a little bit of background of uh, the prophet Micah. Uh, Micah is called to expose the injustice of Judah and the righteousness and justice of Yahweh. About a third of the book indicts Israel and Judah, that would be the northern and southern kingdoms, for specific sins, including oppression, bribery among the judges, the prophets, the priests, exploitation of the powerless, covetousness, they were cheating, violent, they're full of pride. Another third of Micah predicts the judgment that will come as a result of these sins. The remaining third of the book is a message of hope and consolation. God's justice will triumph, and the divine deliverer will come. True peace and justice will prevail only when the Lord returns in his reign. The goodness and the severity of God. Romans 11.22, which we're going to be going to just a little bit later. And what the Lord is really, if I'd pick out one verse that would sum up what the Lord really wants from his people, um, will be in next week. It's Micah 6.8. We sing it as a song. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And we'll be getting to that um, uh, next Wednesday. If I would sum up briefly uh, the first three chapters, because there's a change in four that talks about the coming kingdom. So in chapter one, you have the judgment on the people. That's Micah's first message. His second message is to the leadership, the judgment on the priest and um, the the call them political leaders of his time. On the third message, 
Micah denounces the leaders of Israel for their sins, first the princes, second the prophets, who were the spiritual leaders, and last, all the leaders of Jerusalem, including the princes, the prophets, and the priests. And again, in chapter 5, we see a pattern of an Old Testament prophecy, just stuck in the middle. And, um, you know, if I was just reading this and didn't have the hindsight that we have of this actually being fulfilled by Herod, we would read right over it and not really pick up what's being said here. So here we have in Micah 5.2, again, this pattern where we read that the ruler is going to come from the town of Bethlehem, and he's, he's going forth, he's always been he's in the past, and he's always going to be. But his birthplace is going to come out of Bethlehem. Hebrews 10 verse 7 says, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Thus the reason for the title this morning, Jesus, from Genesis to Revelation. Literally, that's what we're going to do. And I can only really hit the mountaintops on these because we would be here all day if we even began to show the types. Just for example, Genesis 37 through 50, the life of Joseph. There are 110 um, direct applications of Joseph being a type of Jesus, 110. So we're not even going there. We're just going to touch on, on prophecies that deal with his birth. I want to talk about the Trinity this morning. And I also want to talk about Calvinism and Arminianism. Taking nothing for granted, last week we talked about Calvinism. We put the five points of Calvinism. Well, this week we're going to put up what is Arminianism and what are the five points of Arminianism. So let's dive in. I've called this um, Jesus, Genesis to Revelation. So let's go back to Genesis 1, verse 1, with our study this morning. And we read the very first verse of the Bible. And if I would be reading this in the Hebrew, it actually would read, In the beginning God's created the heavens and the earth, because the word God there, uh, when it's singular, it's just El. But that's not what we have in Genesis 1, verse 1. We have Elohim. So it actually says, in the beginning, gods. We have a picture of the Father and the Son creating the heavens and the earth. So from the very, very first verse in the Bible, we read in verse 2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And now we have the third part of the Trinity. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the first two verses of the Bible, you have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit. It is plural. It is Elohim. If you look down at verse 26, um, we did a word study on this, and I wanted to know... If when it says, then God said, I wanted to know, is it El singular or is it Elohim plural? And we found out that it, when it says, then God said, it is Elohim plural. So the Father and the Son are speaking and saying, let us, that's plural, make man in our, that's plural image, according to our likeness, 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle, and all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So from the very beginning, we see Jesus as God. If you go to chapter 3, we have the first prophecy of Jesus being born. This is the first time uh, and the first prophecy. It comes as a result of um, Eve's sin and Adam's sin. And now the Lord is pronouncing judgment on the serpent, on the man, and on the woman. I'm just going to zero in on verse 15, which is a prophecy. And what the Lord, um, his judgment is going to be on Lucifer, the serpent in the garden. Verse 15 of chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. The seed of the woman eventually, as explained to us in the next verse, is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. And we have here um, what the enemy tried to do in defeating Jesus, but the Lord says he's going to defeat him. And we have this first prediction of the seed of the woman is a reference to the birth and the outcome of what he's going to do. He's going to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, the Lord will be bruised. He was bruised. He was beaten. He was whipped. Um, Isaiah 52 said he was marred more than any man. And I, I stagger at that verse. How Is that literal? More than any man? Remember they pulled his beard out and you guys that have beards and had it pulled on, you know what that's like. And then he was beaten. Um, the blows, they, they covered his face. Usually when you, you know, you watch a fight, you watch the guys roll with the punches. Well, the Lord didn't see the punches coming. And they, they beat him. He could have died from the whipping. So he was bruised, but the enemy was defeated on the cross. So here's the first prophecy. It's Genesis 3, verse 15, of the birth of Jesus. Turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. Isaiah 7. Give you a little bit of the background here. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jothan, um, Ahaz had no heart for the Lord, none whatsoever. And Isaiah is trying to reassure him that Assyria is not going to Assyria is not going to cause any trouble to Israel, but Ahab really doesn't care about the things of God, the Word of God. So, from verses one till nine, um, it's it's Isaiah telling Ahaz, "I don't want you to sweat it about Syria and Damascus." Um, but make sure, he says in verse 9, if you will not believe it, surely you will not be established. So to prove what the prophet is saying, he says to Ahab, verse 10, moreover, the Lord spoke to Ahaz and said, ask a sign of yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depths or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Well, he was just blowing him off. And then he said, hear now, house of uh, David, 
Is it a small thing that you weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself, he's going to give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, or God, with us. And so here we have a prophecy in the middle of the Lord (laughs) trying to reassure Ahaz, don't sweat it with the Syrians at Damascus. But he didn't want to hear from the Lord. And he says, okay, I'm going to tell you anyway. I'm going to do something supernatural that only I can do. I can take care of Syria. Raisin is the guy, the leader there of Damascus, the Assad today. He says, I can handle those guys. But I want you to believe it. And so he throws in here a prophecy that um, we're reading about in Micah. But if you just turn the page to chapter 9, we also have a prophecy concerning the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 6, we find, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Let me just stop there and comment on these two verses. Unto us a child is born is sort of the earthly perspective. That's the way we see it. But as far as heaven sees it, and unto us a son is given. That would be the heavenly perspective. The father sent the son. But he was born as a child is born. The government will be upon his shoulder And his name will be called the Wonderful and Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order and establish it with justice and judgment. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So in Isaiah, we have, making our way through from Genesis, just the mountaintop here in Isaiah 7 and 9, speaking of the Lord's birth. Now, let's turn to our text, which would be next in Micah. And we find here, again in the middle of a message of judgment, the Holy Spirit telling us where the Messiah is going to be born. The little town of Bethlehem. Uh, we don't go to Bethlehem anymore. It's just not safe. And so we go to a place called the Shepherd's Field. And um, we have this beautiful open area that's um, not developed. And we stop there and we give a Bible study of what happened in, in this particular spot. It's one of my favorite places in Israel. Because this is where David was. And before David, there was Ruth and Boaz. And um, we have those connections. And then we have the Lord um, being born. And we're sitting there giving this Bible study. And you sit and look at the city of Bethlehem. Talk about the scriptures coming alive. And all this happened. Boaz falling in love with Ruth. And then and um, David raising the, the sheep there. That's where he was called to be the king of Israel. And then the Lord himself. And that takes us to the fulfillment. Let's turn to, we read here that. Let's go down to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. 
In verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I'm sharing with a man right now um, who is just reading man's opinion on where Jesus was, was born. He asked me, where do you think Jesus was born? And I said, well, he's born in Bethlehem. And he said, are you sure? And I said, yes, I'm sure. And he said, well, we think he was born in Nazareth. And I didn't get to the part yet where I said, I think you're wrong. (laughs) I'm saving that for later. But as you study the scriptures, it tells us exactly where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Prophesied by Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. It says, and it was wise men that came to Jerusalem from the east, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod and the kings heard these things, he was troubled. Why was he troubled? Because Herod is the king of the Jews. What do you mean, another king of the Jews? And he was troubled in Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, saying, where was the Christ to be born? They looked to the Old Testament for their answer. He didn't know. He had to ask. So they said, in Bethlehem of Judah, for it is written by the prophets, in this case, the prophet Micah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then he sends the wise men, and as you know, they follow the star, and it goes and and falls upon um, where the Lord would be born, in Bethlehem. At this point, I want to begin to tie in that Jesus is God, and people say, well, where does it say in the Bible that Jesus is God? Well, if you read the Bible, all over the place. And if you go to chapter 3, by the way, when we get to, um, I want to go to, before I get to chapter 3, let's go back to chapter 2 and read 16 and 18. Now this is after Herod finds out where the king of the Jews is going to be born. Well, he won't have any of that. He doesn't want any competition. So in verse 16 when, of chapter 2, when Herod when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, so angels appeared to the wise men and said, don't go back to Herod, go back a different way. Uh, they were exceedingly angry, he was, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in the district from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined by the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. So here we have another prophecy about what would happen as a result of Jesus' birth. A very jealous king named Herod wanted no competition, and he would do whatever it took to eliminate that competition. So this is from Jeremiah 31. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they were no more. Now, I want you to remember this, because when we get to Revelation chapter 12, I want to come back and requote this particular verse. But let's just look at the Trinity. We find, let's pick this up in um, 
Matthew chapter 3, verse, um, let's see, Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized. So this will be the baptism of the Lord. And John tried to prevent him, saying, Oh, I have need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And then Jesus, when he had been baptized, came up, and immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. What do we have here? We have Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit descending. But then in verse 17, we have the Father speaking. Then suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. It can only be the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I point these scriptures out. Because you have the Trinity right here. Does it say this is the Trinity? No. Do you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. So we have one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But even going back to the very first verse of the Bible, it's in plural. It's Elohim. In the beginning, God's, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit created the heavens and the earth. From here, let's go to Matthew 17, where we have just the Father and the Son. It's the Mount of Transfiguration. And verses 1 through 6 is what we'll read here. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Why Moses and why Elijah? I think it was a staff meeting about Revelation chapter 11, where we have two witnesses. And I believe these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. If you think it's Enoch, I'm not going to argue with you. Because neither Elijah or Enoch saw death. So there, there's a good argument for that. But I'm, I'm putting my money down on Moses, so if you want to believe in Enoch, that's okay. You're wrong, but it's okay. <laughs> then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Um, if, if you want, we can make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. It can only be the Father who speaks here, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. The guys were all overcome by Elijah and Moses. Wow, Elijah and Moses. But here the Lord is glorified before them. And we have an example again of the Father speaking directly from heaven And so we have the Father and His Son together. Let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John 1, verse 1. The whole point of John's Gospel, we have um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call them the synoptic 
Gospels because they are similar. John is very, very different. John has one point that he wants to make. And it begins in verse 1 and it ends in chapter 21, the last verse. That Jesus, he wants to show that Jesus is God. And so he doesn't write like Matthew, Mark, or Luke. But he writes about seven miracles and seven I am statements. The whole book revolves around the seven I am statements. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the bread. I am the door. And so on and so forth. And then seven miracles beginning with chapter 2 when he turned the water into wine at Cana. Um, In verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Translated for us in verse 14, and the word became flesh, where? In Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is how John begins his gospel, by saying that Jesus is God. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And we have John's account. Let's turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. I'll give you a, a little bit of time to get there. Galatians 4. Oh, we'll read 4 through 6. God has a timetable. In studying Daniel, we know that the timetable um, revolves around a 490-year period of time that God is going to work with, with the people of Israel. 483 of those years are already fulfilled, but um, the clock stopped with one seven-year period of time yet to be fulfilled. Now, the Great Tribulation period begins in chapter 6 and goes through chapter 19 with the second coming. It is exactly a seven-year period of time. And this is an important subject when it gets into understanding Daniel chapter 9, that he's speaking only about Israel and the city of Jerusalem, not the church. This is how much time I'm going to work just with Israel, 490 years, Daniel wanted to know. And so when we read that God does work on a timetable, we read in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come. It had to be after 483 years. So then when it came, Galatians 4 is explaining, okay, now is the time. The fullness of time has now come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Now we're back in Micah 5, verse 2. Born in Bethlehem. Born of a woman, born under the law. And uh, that takes us back to the first prophecy, Genesis 3, verse 15, the seed of the woman. Was born of a woman under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons And because you're sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So what do we have here? Another picture of the Trinity. We have the Father sending his son, 
And then after Jesus ascended into heaven, he says, it's absolutely necessary that I go. Because if I don't go back to heaven, then I can't send the helper or the third part of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And we read that in verse 6 where it said God sent forth the Spirit after Jesus ascended into heaven. These are Trinity verses where we see um, the Godhead. All right, let's go to the book next of Colossians chapter 1. I'll give you a little bit of time to get there. In verse 13 of Colossians 1, we read, uh, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist." And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. I want to read down to verse 23 for a reason. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight, if indeed you continue. Now I have that underlined in my Bible. He has made you blameless in his sight, but then he says, if you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. In these verses, again, we see the Trinity. But then, uh, and this is where we're going to do a little um, sidetrack here, turn to the book of Romans, chapter 11. And while you're turning, we read in Colossians, if you continue. And here's where we're going to start to get into the dialogue, call it debate if you want to, with Arminianism versus Calvinism. And I'll try to explain it um, in as, in, in a, as simply as I can, uh, that particular debate. But before I do, what's being implied here is the necessity on our part. The work's been done, but then we're told that we need to continue in it rather and not depart from it. It explained, I think, more fully in Romans chapter 11, picking it up in verse 17. And the idea here is God putting Israel on the shelf for a period of time. And people who don't understand why God did that 
have come up with what, what we call Reformed theology. There's people that have, the Jews have rejected Jesus, therefore Jesus has rejected the Jews, he's done with them. And Romans 9, 10, and 11 is the definitive uh, topic in teaching on what God is really doing with, with Israel. And so in verse 17, he's explaining that, that Israel is, is what God called, and there will always be a remnant. And uh, they're, they're the body of the tree. And in verse 17, it says, And some of the branches were broken off, and you, he's talking about us Gentiles now, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. So he says to us Christians, do not boast against the branches, against Israel. But if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, well, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That's Reformed theology right there. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. He says, do not be haughty, but fear. Hmm. Don't, this is interesting that we read this in men's prayer yesterday about having a godly fear. But for if God did not spare the natural branches, well, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God of those who fell severity, but towards you, goodness. Now notice this, goodness, but if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. Does that need to be read again? Or is it pretty self-explanatory? Continue in it, otherwise what? Otherwise you will be cut off. Thus we enter the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. Yesterday at men's prayer, um, unfortunately one of our our brothers, I'm not going to name names, is backslidden. He went back to his old ways and he's not continuing in the faith. While he was with us, and doing well, always witnessing, always sharing, always defending the faith, speaking against evil, and those things that would keep you from the Lord, he's gone back to. So we're praying for him. And our concern in praying for him is sort of like in 1 Corinthians 5, speaking to the church. There was a guy in the church that was sleeping around. And um, Paul says, I'm not even there. But I, I judge the situation from here. Kick him out. Let him have no fellowship. Turn him over to the devil. And pray for the destruction of his flesh. And some of you are thinking, well, that's not a very loving thing to do. It is the most loving thing you could do. Because he says, if you don't do that, and pray for the destruction of his flesh, so his soul will be saved. Implying what? That his danger at that point of living in adultery and fornication and doesn't realize, unless he's broken and repents, that his soul is not going to be saved. Now, I don't like preaching that, but that's clearly what is taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so we have great concern for our backslidden brother, because he is not continuing in the faith. Well, last week we explained the five points of Calvinism. And uh, this week, um, I'm reading from Pastor Chuck's book, Calvinism and Armenianism. And I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs 
to give you a little bit of background of where Arminianism came from. Chuck says, perhaps no issue is as important or potentially divisive as the doctrine of salvation reflected in the the debate between followers of John Calvin and those of Jacob Herman, uh, best known by the Latin form of his last name, Arminius. Now, since the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, Christian churches and leaders have disagreed over such issues as depravity, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, election, predestination, eternal security, and the nature and the extent of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Although uh, trained in Reformed tradition, Arnimus had serious doubts about the doctrine of sovereign grace as taught by the followers of John Calvin. He was a pastor of the Reformed congregation in Amsterdam in 1588, but during his 15 years of ministry there, he began to question many of the conclusions of Calvinism. He left the pastorate, became a professor of theology at the University of, of Leiden. It was his series of lectures on election and predestination that led to a violent and tragic controversy. After his death in 1609, his followers developed uh, the remonstrance stance of 1610, which outlined the five points of Arminianism. This document was a protest against the doctrine of the Calvinist and was submitted to the state of Holland in 1618. A national synod of the churches was convened in Dort to examine the teaching of Arminius in light of the scriptures. After 154 sessions, lasting seven months, the five points of Arminianism were declared to be heretical, and after the synod, many of the disciples of Arminius, such as Hugo Grotus, were imprisoned or banished. When John Wesley took up some of the teachings of Arminianism, the movement began to grow, and it affected the Methodist tradition as well as the beliefs of most Pentecostal and charismatic churches. That'll give you that much of a background. Now, what we're going to put on the screen, as we did last week with the five points of Calvinism, I'm going to put up the five points of Arminianism, and I believe uh, we have some printouts of these on the back table. I'm not 100% sure about that, but let's go through them quickly. Number one, free will. Arnimus believed that the fall of man was not total, maintaining that there was enough good left in man for him to will to accept Jesus Christ unto salvation. Number two, conditional election. Arnimus believed that election was based on the foreknowledge of God as to whom would believe. Man's act of faith was seen as a condition or his being elected to eternal life since God foresaw him exercising his free will in response to Jesus Christ. Universal atonement, number three. Arnimus held that redemption was based on the fact that God loves everybody, that Christ died for everyone, and that the Father is not willing that any should perish. The death of Christ provided the grounds for God to save all men, but each man must exercise his own free will in order to be saved. 
obstructible grace. Armas believed that since God wanted all men to be saved, then he sent the Holy Spirit to woo all men to Christ. But since man has absolute free will, he is able to resist God, God's will for his life. He believed that God's will to save all men can be frustrated by the finite will of man. He also taught that man exercises his own free will and then is born again. And finally, five, falling from grace. If man cannot be saved by God unless it's man's will to be saved, then man cannot continue in salvation unless he continues uh, to will to be saved. Again, I would point out with this, and this is a hot button topic because it is one of the most divisive doctrines of those who believe in eternal security where Arminius, in this last point especially, is pointing out is conditional. There's an if there. And uh, the reason I went to Romans 12, it talks about the goodness and severity and about the possibility of being cut off. If you continue in the goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. So which is it? When I get to Romans chapter um, 8 and talk about nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither height nor depth nor powers nor principalities nor things above or things below, nothing. That's true. That's eternal security. And you are eternally secure. Good place for an amen. And a person reads that one scripture goes, I'm believing in eternal security. But then you got to take the whole counsel of God. And when I take the whole counsel of God, I, f- I find that there's a lot of ifs in there. And it's too much of a study. This is supposed to be just a sidetrack, so I've got to be careful here. But what we believe as a Calvary Chapel movement is that the Bible teaches both. And the question is, well, how can both be right? And the answer to that is his ways are far above our ways, past finding out. Chuck got so bad one day when he, he says, Lord, he slams the Bible down, throws it across the room. He says, I don't understand it. And he said, I didn't ask you to. I just asked you to believe it. Which one? Both. Well, that doesn't make sense. You're right. Go figure. And such are the ways of God that surpasses you and I. Otherwise, God wouldn't be God. But as we look at this here, and I know it's a hot-button topic, how should we deal with it? I like what Chuck says here concerning the debate on which side of the fence you fall on. I, I believe in the balance between the two. But Chuck sums it up in his book, this little book here. Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. When a particular position on the scriptures causes one to become argumentative, legalistic, and divisive, well, I question the validity of that position. I seek to embrace those things that tend to make me more loving and kind, more forgiving and merciful. I know then that I'm becoming more like my Lord. If you have come to a strong personal conviction on one side of a doctrinal issue, please grant us the privilege of verse first seeing how it has helped you become more Christ-like in your nature. And then we will judge whether we need to come to that same persuasion. Let us always be certain to look 
at the fruit of the teaching. Seek those things that produce the love, uh, nature of Jesus in our lives. Chuck says, I would rather have wrong facts and a right attitude than the right facts and a wrong attitude. He said, God can change my understanding of the facts in a moment, but it often takes a lifetime to affect changes of attitude. People have a position, and then you point out another side of it, and their minds are already made up. And, um, you know, again, quoting Paul Simon, man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. This is my position. And if you don't like it, then I don't like you. (laughs) And Chuck is saying that's just not the way the Lord is. There are things that frustrate us when it comes to the debate between Arminianism and Calvinism. And that's all I have to say about that. Revelation chapter 12, back to our study, off our sidetrack. Revelation 12, verses 1 through 5. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. And who is the woman? Well, this is uh, Joseph's dream that he had with his brothers, 11 stars and the sun and the moon. It's basically the woman is Israel. Verse 2, then being with child, she cried out with labor and gave birth. Well, we know that happened in Bethlehem. What happened right after that? And another sight appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and seven horns and seven diadems on his head. Well, who is this? Well, verse 9 tells us. It tells us, so that great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil. So it's no mystery in in verse 3 who the fiery red dragon is, is the devil. He drew a a third of the stars of heaven. This is when he rebelled. The third of the stars here would be angels. One third of the angelic realm were deceived by him. And they threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as the child was born. Now we have a heavenly perspective of what's happening in Bethlehem when Herod, demon-possessed by the devil himself, wants to kill every child. Remember when we read uh, Matthew 2, then Herod when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and a district from two days old and under according to the time that was determined by the wise men. And that fulfilled the scripture of Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That's Revelation 12, verse 4. The devil was waiting for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, possessing Herod. He had all the kids killed. He didn't want to miss any, so he even went to the surrounding areas. Between verses 4 and 5, we have a 33-year period of time gap because that's how long Jesus was here. And she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and the child was caught up to God and to his throne. Well, that happened 33 years later. Let's begin to widen this up by turning to Luke chapter 2. 
and talk a little bit about after his birth, his dedication. And I have a reason for going here as we're, we, be, we do begin to wind this up. <clears throat> Luke 2, verse 25. We're introduced to Simeon's prophecy. Chapter 2, verse 25, it says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. I wonder if he was reading Daniel. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Simeon, you're not going to die till you see the deliverer. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents, that would be Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. That is a prophecy from Isaiah 9.2 and 42.6. And Joseph and his mother marveled at the things which were spoken of him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many. Um, it doesn't say here he is destined for the rise of many or the fall of many, but it says both. I want you to think that through. And for a sign which will be spoken against. Now he speaks to Mary. And yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And this is, of course, Mary at the foot of the cross and the Lord saying from the cross, woman, behold your son, and to John, John, behold your mother. In other words, take care of my mom. And, um, but her soul was pierced as any mother's soul would be pierced at the losing of a son. And here it was prophesied. Now in verse um, Oh, go to verse 39. So when they had performed all things, this was the dedication, according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth, and the child grew, became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So it stops here. And now we go ahead. Nothing is said for the next 12 years But in verse 41, it says, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Now this is, the Lord isn't mentioned for 12 years. Now, at the age of 13, they have what they call the bar mitzvah. And this is when they allow um, the boys to study with the men. And here, you know the rest of the story, that they go back, Bob and Dad go back to Nazareth, and after a day's journey, must have been with a caravan because they're looking around, where's, where's Jesus? They had to go all the way back to Jerusalem. And there he was teaching uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, and, um, of course, Mom comes and scolds them and says, well, what are you doing? Don't you know we were anxious and worried? And he says, verse 49, 
Why is it that you sought me? Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Another 18 years is going to go by, and um, um, he begins his, his ministry. Let's close this up this morning by looking at Revelation 22, and remember how we started our study this morning. We titled it, um, Jesus, Genesis to Revelation. The very first book, the very first verse in Genesis 1.1 talks about the Lord Jesus Christ. Good place for an amen. Now, the very last verses of the Bible and we've hit the mountaintops on our study this morning about his birth. Picking it up in Revelation uh, 22, um, where the Lord said in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. You and I are the bride, and we say, Lord, Please come, and let him who thirsts come. And whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. This is an invitation if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you haven't been able to satisfy that itch or that thirst inside. You can try anything you want to, but you're going to come up empty and empty and empty. And only when you drink of the water that he gives will you never thirst again or the bread of life You'll never be hungry again. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part of the book of life from the holy city and from the things which are written in the book. He who testifies to these things, now notice the last verse in the Bible, is read. The last right before the last one. This is Jesus in the last verse and the first verse of Genesis. Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And what a benediction, the way to end our Bible study this morning. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And amen. amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, as we make our way through the book of Micah, reading about judgment that you're going to bring upon the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In the middle of all that, you drop in this prophecy about where you would enter and become and leave yourself as fully God and becoming fully God and also fully man in Bethlehem. So we thank you for your word this morning, Lord. Truly, the volume of the book is written about you. In Jesus' name, amen.